You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Kruger, Brendan, MD, Big Beard, Schmarls, Josiah, Logan, Cannon Monkey, Axios, The Knight of Dampier, Pablo, Nikki, Governor Roop, Tobes, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And our newest patrons, Brett, Nathaniel, and Neil. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Following the Battle of Port Royal, while enjoying the spoils afforded by that raid, Provost Marshal of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, William Phipps, decided to press his luck. He allied himself with two Puritan ministers, the Harvard-educated father-and-son duo of Increase and Cotton Mather, Phipps was baptized into a Puritan church. He was welcomed into the fold of Puritan politics by all of Boston's finest. He lobbied for and eventually led the follow-up attack on Canada, the disastrous Battle of Quebec. We were going to talk about that battle today, but there wasn't much I found there that we didn't cover during the Battle of Port Royal. It was a much larger force that sailed on Quebec, but the French repelled the English with a near-constant barrage of cannon fire from their fortress walls. The following spring, 1691, Increase Mather and William Phipps sailed for England. It was Sir William that really got them through the door. Remember, his haul from La Nuestra Senora earned him a knighthood, the first knighthood of any American-born citizen. And it boosted the English economy in ways that really we're still feeling the effects of today. They founded the Bank of England because of it. Phipps had a foot in the door. They were in London to negotiate a new charter for the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Phipps was to be at the helm of the colony, and, as Marshal General at this point, Phipps had big plans for winning the war, in North America at least. But finally they returned to Boston on the 21st of April, 1692. Their writ was to establish a new and stronger government in Massachusetts. Phipps had big plans and big concerns going in. His job as a governor installed by royal writ, rather than by voting of the people as it had been, his job was to prosecute the war. Moreover, he was going to have to build or commandeer his own ships and to find his own sailors. As we've seen in the past, he had innovative ways of doing so. But before he could get to any of that business, Phipps was presented with a much more pressing concern. 
He would later write, quote, I found this province miserably harassed by a most horrible witchcraft or possession of devils. Some scores of poor people were taken with preternatural torments. Some were scalded with brimstone. Some had pins stuck into their flesh. Others were hurried into fire and water. End quote. Massachusetts was in the grip of a nefarious coven of witches and the terror that they inspired. William Phipps was forced, as we are today, to turn his eyes away from the bigger picture and contend with the devil in Massachusetts. This is episode 185, An Enemy of All Good. It's almost Halloween, the season of the witch, if you will, and I'd like to take this opportunity to talk about the horror that gripped New England in 1692. The Salem witch trials are famous for good reason. They helped forge the social and legal and religious traditions of a people who were almost but not quite American. Much of the imagery and tone of what scares us as Americans was first discovered here in Salem in 1692. If we were to believe a host of film critics and literary analysts and filmmakers and authors, we would find that our American horror diverges from that of the mother country in large part thanks to the experience of the people of New England. Washington Irving was born in New York, H.P. Lovecraft in Providence, Edgar Allan Poe, Boston. I'd like you to picture the, the short gray days of a rural New England autumn the long, dark, unquiet nights, the howling winds broken only by howling wolves, and the occasional nor'easter which could carry off livestock and people and whole buildings. New England was a country still being cut out from the wilderness. Danger could lurk down any country road. There were wolves and boars and bears and unfamiliar men cloaked in shadow. Now all of that sounds a little bit cliché, doesn't it? But it comes from a real time and place, from real fears that were felt by real people. When you look at English or British horror, there's often an urban flair to it. The danger that lurks in the dark in England awaits you in the fall. Clacking cobblestones between havens of gaslight in a gothic Victorian London. That's probably thanks to the real-world horrors of the Industrial Revolution and Jack the Ripper. But in America, it's always in the wilderness. How many times have you watched a group of college kids or camp counselors drive out to Crystal Lake or a cabin in the woods for a summer of fun and drinking and premarital sex? Why is it always the woods? Well, because it's cheap to shoot outside, but also because America was then and is now afraid of the monster lurking beyond the tree line. How many times has that sinful summer teenage romp turned into an orgy of blood? The most common criticism I've heard levied against the Friday the 13th movies, aside from, you know, just being kind of bad, is their puritanical outlook. The only person to survive is the chaste virgin. She doesn't drink, she doesn't dance, she doesn't listen to the heavy metal music, she doesn't give in to her carnal urges. Everyone else, all of her companions, suffer terrible death and 
presumably an eternity in hell, for their sinful ways. And that is puritanical. They are suffering real-world punishment for their sins. Whenever a Puritan, an actual Puritan, suffered any kind of misfortune, anything from a stubbed toe to the death of their child, they looked to God and their own sins for a reason why. Maybe you stole a glance at your neighbor's ankle. Well, that might explain why your hog died. They saw meaning in everything. They saw rainbows and flocks of birds and stars as filled with prophecy. Oddly, the Puritans practiced a number of beliefs that look a bit like modern New Age witchcraft, like astrology. It could all get a bit ridiculous, really. But there were actual threats out there. That shadow-cloaked stranger on a lonesome road on a dark and stormy night was not a trick of the light. It was a real person who might intend you harm. Was it a Frenchman in a funny hat? Well, sometimes, yeah. But more often and more frightening, it was one of the Wabanaki. We've discussed at some length in recent weeks one of the more infamous Wabanaki raids in New English history. What we haven't discussed is the threat of lone warriors, or groups of two or three warriors, who would rove the woodlands in search of food and fire and comfort. They might accost you on the road, or they might appear in your doorway in the middle of the night like a specter. And when you take a step back, it's never that simple. I've said many times that atrocities were committed by everybody on all sides. But to the people of New England, well, there wasn't a single resident of Massachusetts that had not been touched by the wars against the Wabanaki Confederacy. In 1690, New England was home to a whole generation of orphans. King Philip's War, which ended back in 1678, that was a war against the Wabanaki that was a disaster for New England. Hundreds of children were either orphaned by or conceived during Wabanaki attacks. More than a few of those orphans, now young men and women, experienced further sorrow for similar reasons in this new war. But of course there's another possibility, another identity for that dark man on a dark road. Whenever a Puritan thought of wolves or storms or Wabanaki warriors or the hated French Catholics, there was one figure responsible for all of it. A figure that was greater than, yet somehow still lesser than all of those evils. A figure that loomed larger than almost any other in the Puritan mind. The blues master who met Robert Johnson at the crossroads. The same who challenged a young man named Johnny to a duel of fiddles down in Georgia. The greatest fear shared by every Puritan in America was who, or what, was responsible for everything else the devil. In the minds of the Puritans, the devil was very much alive and omnipresent in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1691-1692. Even those of us in the modern world who believe in Satan usually don't believe in him like the Puritans believed in him. You know, the devil might be a malevolent force behind all the evils of the world, 
But we don't tend to picture Lucifer himself literally sitting on our laps and whispering into our ears. The Puritans did. That belief in the physical reality of Satan can be difficult for those of us in the modern world to really wrap our minds around. Two of my favorite horror movies, really two of my favorite movies of any genre, deal with this question. The Witch is a phenomenal film. I don't want to spoil it here, but you really should go check it out, especially if you're interested in this story or language of the time. The other movie, though, is a classic. To me, The Exorcist is so terrifying because of the question with which it confronts you. The mother, who I think we're supposed to identify with, well, she struggles for most of the film with what is happening to to Reagan, her daughter. It's not until desperation drives her to seek the help of a priest that she even begins to consider that what's wrong with her daughter might be supernatural. If a real demon is actually possessing her daughter, that means that it's all real. God is real. And that means, well, think about all the rules that you're breaking. I mean, I had shellfish this week. I had pork, too. And I have tattoos, and and I shaved. Oh, God. As we will see, that's how the Puritans lived their life. I mean, they had a very large, heaping spoonful of hypocrisy on top of it, but they attempted to live as though the devil were looking over their shoulder. But before we get going, there is one last thing I want to note. This is a story about girls and young women between the ages of 9 and 19. There are themes all throughout of a disenfranchised, a repressed minority that was using the tools available to them to make their voices heard. Alongside that, there are the spiritual and sexual forces raging in all teenagers, but in this story in particular, in adolescent girls. Having myself never been an adolescent girl, I'm clearly not qualified to talk about this with any real depth. So in that respect, as with a ton of others, I'm going to be relying on two separate books by two fantastic historians. The first is by Stacy Schiff, her fantastic history, The Witches, Salem, 1692. I can't recommend it highly enough. Second, there's a a classic meditation on the Holocaust via Salem called The Devil in Massachusetts by Marion Starkey. It's also an excellent read, and it inspired The Crucible by Arthur Miller. I'm going to be pulling largely from those sources. The movie references are mine. I'm qualified to do that, at least. And I've got a fantastic one set up for Hulk Hogan's 1991 tour de force, Suburban Commando, but mostly I'm pulling from those historians. Stacy Schiff writes of the role of the young women in this story, quote, At its heart are unfulfilled wishes and unexpressed anxieties, rippling sexual undercurrents and raw terror. It unspools in that fertile, dreamlike expanse between the uncanny and the absurd. There had been New England witch trials before, but none precipitated by a cohort of adolescent and pre-adolescent girls. Like a fairy tale, Salem is a story in which women, strong-minded women and trembling subservient women, upright matrons and wayward teenagers, play decisive roles. 
It includes a tacit salute to unsettling female power and the sheer number of women accused. Women play the villains in fairy tales. What are you saying when you place the very emblem of lowly domestic duty between your legs and ride off, defying the bounds of community and laws of gravity? End quote. I hope I've imparted just how uncertain life in New England could be, how terrifying it was. The people of Massachusetts saw their colony in a state of siege, besieged by the forces of evil. For example, in 1691, word arrived from England that they were to transition from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar. The Puritans were among the last holdouts on this issue, and they stood firm. After all, this was a Catholic innovation, and in the Puritan mind, Catholic was synonymous with satanic. It was a system that moved the date how many days? Thirteen days. An evil number imposed by evil men. Massachusetts was often called the Bible Commonwealth, and in the mind of the Puritan people, it was the last place on earth that was honestly pious. Stacy Schiff again writes, quote, They believed the Reformation incomplete, the Church of England insufficiently pure. They intended North America to complete the task. On a providential mission, they hoped to begin anew. They had the advantage of building a civilization, a new English Israel, as one clergyman termed it in 1689, from scratch. End quote. The world was sinful. The mission of the Puritans, therefore, was to save it and to save humanity from the fires of hell. Their tiny little corner of the globe was home to the only people anywhere that were destined for heaven. Therefore, it would make sense that the devil was very interested in corrupting the souls of New England. But given all of that... It took longer than one might expect for Salem minister Samuel Paris to jump to the conclusion that Satan was involved when two of the girls in his house began to exhibit signs of strange behavior. The minister's nine-year-old daughter, Betty Paris, and her 11-year-old cousin, Abigail Williams, were the first girls in Salem Village to suffer mysterious bites and pinches and pinpricks in the night, to complain of bad dreams, and to experience periods of blindness and deafness and occasionally seizures. Minister Paris initially assumed that the girls were sick, and he treated them accordingly. He prayed for their recovery, and he asked his local parishioners to do the same. He had his slave, Tichuba, probably a South American Indian and not an African slave, but he had Tichuba look after the girls. None of it helped, though. Now, these symptoms were not unique to the girls in the Paris household. They'd been seen before. Only a few years earlier, another group of young women from Massachusetts suffered a similar affliction. That case was documented by a young and upcoming minister named Cotton Mather. It was one of New England's most popular works. It was a book that sat beside the Bible in many a Salem household. Now, we don't know that Abigail Williams and Betty Paris read Cotton Mather's treatise on witchcraft. But we do know that both girls, and likely even Tichuba, knew how to read. 
That was almost a prerequisite of life in New England. Everyone was expected to know how to read and to teach their children how to read. How else are you going to experience the Word of God? But Minister Paris, the girls getting ever worse, finally relented. He called in a doctor, probably a Dr. Griggs, from Salem Town. I should probably pause here to explain that Salem Village and Salem Town were kind of not the same thing. Back in the 1650s, a bunch of landowners from Salem Town, who owned property way out in the countryside, they built a meeting house. It was part church and part town hall, and one of their members built a tavern called Ingersoll's Ordinary. They were both intended merely to be closer to home for everybody who owned farms out there. But in the intervening 40 years or so, a number of taverns popped up. They almost exclusively drank hard cider, and a few shops and a mill. Salem Village was almost an entity of its own, but it was a very small town. And they owed taxes still to Salem proper. Beyond that, they had to send militiamen ten miles away to patrol Salem Town. Salem Village had been engaged in a long-running legal battle for emancipation from Salem Town. The only real victory so far was when Boston intervened and granted Salem Village an independent parish. They had the right now to hire their own ordained minister. But given that, they still had a tough time keeping a minister on the job. Two of those ministers, who are going to make an appearance later on in this story, had to skip town to avoid a debtor's cell. They weren't getting paid, so they had to take out loans, and since they weren't getting paid, they couldn't pay them back. Samuel Paris was, initially, a merchant and a real estate developer out of Barbados. He was, I should say, a failed merchant and real estate developer. He had been bankrupted a number of times. That's the only reason that he even considered accepting this position in Salem Village. It wasn't a job that anyone wanted. Here in 1690, Massachusetts was flush with ministers that were boasting masters in theology from Harvard. They were out of work looking for a good job, and none of them even considered Salem Village. That's why the people there had to look to a failed Barbadian merchant. And he didn't jump at the opportunity. He bargained hard before accepting. The negotiations took almost a year. But finally, in late 1688, Samuel Paris agreed to a decent salary, a good home to live in, and regular deliveries of firewood. He would receive none of it. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside 
The Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. By the winter of 1691-1692, which was one of the coldest in New England's history, the need for firewood was of significantly more concern than his daughter and his niece acting up. And it, it was. He might die, his family might freeze to death. His sermons were all of the injuries of Jesus Christ, and he made veiled references to his need for firewood and money, but as the winter grew colder, they grew less and less veiled. But there was a stream of well-wishers in the Paris household, those coming to pray with the minister and his wife, and maybe to gawk at the girls to see what was wrong. But even if Minister Paris had not yet made the connection between Betty and Abigail and the book by Reverend Mather, everyone else was putting that together. At first it was whispered rumors, but more and more it became the talk of the tavern. Everyone at Ingersoll's knew that the Paris household was beset by witchcraft. There was a certain thrill in all of this, a certain scandal. Reverend Paris was not terribly popular there in Salem Village. A failed merchant whose sermons harped more and more on his own personal grievances, he was criticized frequently by the pious town folk. Oh, they all sent their thoughts and prayers, of course, but the town tittered with admonition against their ministers. It was the talk of all Salem Village, except in the sermons given by Paris himself. One of the church faithful, a prominent woman in town named Mary Sibley, who was a regular at the Paris household, decided it was time to take matters into her own hands. As Stacy Schiff puts it, quote, On February 25, Sibley arranged a furtive experiment. The question was no longer what afflicted the children, but who. Sibley determined to catch a witch. End quote. Mary Sibley ordered one of the Paris household slaves, a man named John Indian, to bake a rye cake that was infused with the girl's urine. Then she fed that cake to one of the household dogs, who... We're not exactly clear on what this was supposed to accomplish. Maybe the evil spell would be transferred from the girls to the dog, or maybe the dog would hunt down the witch like a bloodhound. Whatever the case, though... When Samuel Paris found out about it, he was furious. This was counter-magic. This was a tool of Satan, in his own home, no less. He railed against Sibley. He called the people of his congregation to shame her. On two separate occasions he did so publicly, and they did so. Still, though, this counter-magic did its job. Within the week, Betty Paris and Abigail Williams had named not one but three women who had bewitched them. Sarah Osborne, Sarah Good, and their own nurse, Tituba. Those three women represent something of a cross-section of Salem Village. Tituba was a slave. Sarah Osborne was a well-dressed, well-off matron with ties to the powerful Putnam family. And Sarah Good was a beggar. She lived in perpetual poverty. Thanks to a series of tragic deaths and bad luck and bad decisions, Sarah Good was forced to live on the charity of her neighbors. 
More than one winter was spent in the home of one or another of the prominent families there in town. Inevitably, Sarah Good wore out her welcome in their home with a foul tongue and her habit of perpetual pipe-smoking. On at least two occasions, Sarah Good and her children were kicked out in the middle of winter. On both occasions, Sarah Good was heard to mutter recriminations and, reportedly, curses. Her departure was followed shortly by the death of an animal on the farm. In the days following the accusation, two more girls came forward. They were suffering the same affliction as the girls in the Paris household, and they were backed by their parents. The first was Elizabeth Hubbard of Salem Town. Hubbard was one of those who had been orphaned by King Philip's war. At this point, she was a 17-year-old maidservant to her uncle, a man named Dr. William Griggs. Hubbard was almost certainly on hand when Dr. Griggs attended the two girls in the Paris household. Elizabeth Hubbard was also very pretty, and at 17 she was old enough to testify under oath. In the trials to come, she would prove in a most dramatic fashion to be something of a star. The other girl to come forward was Anne Putnam, Jr., she came forward to back up the claim against Sarah Osborne. Now, I'm sure there's no connection here, but we might mention that Sarah Osborne was involved in a long-running legal dispute with Anne's father, Thomas Putnam. Sarah Osborne had formerly been Thomas Putnam's stepmother. And following the death of Thomas's father, Anne Putnam's grandfather, Sarah Osborne remarried a very attractive young Irish farmhand, and in doing so claimed more of the inheritance for herself and her new husband than had been promised in the will. She and the Putnam men had been in and out of court for years now. And that's actually a key element to this story. The witch trials were trials. It's not that scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's not the almost uninhibited lynchings of the Thirty Years' War. They went into courtrooms with magisters and juries to determine the guilt of these witches. It was deeply corrupt and as flawed as can be, but it looked at least like a trial. Full disclosure here, I've never seen the 1991 Hulk Hogan opus, Suburban Commando. I did, though, have a VHS copy of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze, and that contained a trailer, at the beginning, for Suburban Commando. I must have watched that trailer a hundred, two hundred times. And there's a line in that trailer that somehow, through the years, has stuck with me. You got any idea what we're gonna do to you? Let me guess. You're gonna pound my face. What are you, nuts? It's the 90s. We're gonna sue you. Singularly prescient, wouldn't you say? They say that life imitates art, but sometimes art imitates life. On February 29, a group of three men trudged through the rain and the mud the ten miles down to Salem Town. There they met with the local magistrates and pressed formal witchcraft charges against Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba. The following morning, the 1st of March, 1692, Salem Town magistrates John Hawthorne and John Corwin served arrest warrants against two of the women accused of witchcraft. Sarah Good was delivered to Ingersoll's Ordinary at ten in the morning that same day. Schiff tells us, quote, 
Insofar as the village had a nucleus, Ingersoll's was it. Steps from the meeting house, the ordinary was the address at which Paris's congregants refreshed themselves between Sunday sermons. End quote. An ordinary, by the way, is not just a tavern. While the meeting house was for official and religious business, an ordinary was for ordinary business. Schiff continues, quote, Only the absences were notable that morning. Sarah Good's upright neighbor, Martha Corey, elected not to attend. She attempted to detain her husband as well, going so far as to unsaddle her husband's horse. She lost the battle. Giles Corey missed not a minute of the week's examinations. End quote. By the time the magistrates arrived with Sarah Good in tow, Ingersoll's was packed. To the rafters, it was too full, so they moved the hearing to the meeting house. The meeting house, though, was a dreary, drafty building. Ingersoll's had offered a warm fire and fresh cider. Many had been enjoying it, but even after moving to the cold, drafty meeting house, more and more people filed in, despite the discomfort. No one was willing to miss a witch trial. The two magistrates played to the crowd, and this trial, really a preliminary hearing, it was a farce, a miscarriage of justice. One of the cornerstones of the modern world, a cornerstone that I think is imperative to any society, is the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. The opposite of that was on display at the local Salem Tavern here in 1692. Picture two justices of the peace, complete with their dark robes and their powdered wigs, men who lived in two of the finest mansions in Massachusetts, at least outside of Boston, presiding over a poor, homeless vagrant with her emaciated five-year-old daughter and suckling infant in tow, all of them in little better than rags in the cold of a New England winter. Corbin led the prayer that opened up the proceedings, and Hawthorne began the questioning. Sarah Good, he said, what evil spirit have you familiarity with? She answered, none. The witches, Schiff's account, surmises his rapid-fire questioning expertly. Quote, had she contracted with the devil? Why did she hurt these children? What creature did she employ to do so? He proceeded less like a judge than a police interrogator. It fell to him to establish not the truth of the charges, but the guilt of the suspect. End quote. It's disgusting and infuriating, but the belief that she was a witch had already been determined by the court. Sarah Good, though, to her credit, stood firm, or, depending on who you listen to, obstinate in the face of this barrage of accusations. Her status, though, as the local undesirable, had already proven her guilt. When she denied the charges, they brought out old rumors and slights that she could not deny they had happened. The muttered curses, the dead animals left in her wake, rumored romps with local men. Even worse, though, even more damning to her case was the one factor that would define the trials to come. The girls who had accused her of torture and torment and witchcraft, well, they were brought into the courtroom. Good was told to look upon them. They were told to move as close to Sarah Good as possible. And there, in the middle of the meeting house in Salem Village, their sufferings became apparent to everyone. The girls began to shudder 
and writhe and gyrate. They cried out in pain, they fell to the floor, they complained of bites and pinches. Teeth marks bloomed on exposed necks and wrists. It was a commanding performance, especially that of the beautiful Hubbard girl. As a performance, it lacked some of the subtlety of their later work, which would be a much more refined piece of theater, but this, as the opening act, was still very effective. Everyone in the packed meeting house, usually even during the sermons of Minister Paris, a raucous place, fell silent, eyes locked on the girls, whose cries and wails and pleas for mercy filled the silence. Hawthorne accosted the defendant. Sarah Good, he said, do you not see now what you have done? Why do you not tell us the truth? Why do you torment these poor children? Sarah Good, in shock, one can imagine, finally lost her composure. The court recorders, because the words of a local vagrant woman aren't worth recording in detail, well, they failed to note all of her words, but they did let us know that, quote, her answers were in a very wicked, spiteful manner, end quote. Her husband, Sarah Good, was married, but they were almost separated by this point. Her husband was asked his opinion on the matter. He was unwilling to confirm his wife's witchcraft, but he was willing to comment on her character. Tearfully, he confessed the abuses that Sarah Good had levied on him and her sovereign and of God. He supplied that she had not been to a meeting, a sermon of Minister Paris, in months now. Finally, he decried his own wife as, quote, an enemy of all good. Now, I want to save the whys of a lot of this until we get deeper into this story, but I do want to mention that if you were a New England man with a wife who you did not like, you had few options in how to get rid of her. Unless she died in childbirth, which was likely, or attacked by a ravening wolf, or you killed her, Really, your only option, when divorce was off the table, was to accuse her of witchcraft. And then he noted something that would doom his estranged wife. He noted that Sarah Good had a witch's mark on her shoulder that had not been there a week prior. A witch's mark is supposed to have been a mark left by the devil, something that was painful or at least irritating to the witch to remind them of Satan's power and reportedly an entry point of the devil into their body. More practically, it was a blemish, anything from a wart or a mole or a boil to a flea bite, or, in some cases, an additional nipple. In a place as stuffy as Puritan New England, it's not like she was showing off her shoulders. She could have had this witch's mark since birth, and nobody but her husband and maybe a few of the women in town had seen it. Aside from, of course, some of those men she was accused to have had a romp in the hay with, but they weren't about to admit their guilt to defend this vagrant witch. Sarah Good was not found guilty, officially. Public opinion was a different matter. But to be found guilty in the eyes of the law required a grand jury. However, she was remitted to the Salem Town Jail. That was a... wet cold, dank pit of raw wood and stone. It had a nickname there in Massachusetts. They called it a suburb of hell. Over the following nine months, more than 60 people accused of witchcraft in New England would pass through the cells of the Salem Town Jail, many of them on their way to even worse hells. 
Up next was Sarah Osborne. Now, she did better than Sarah Good had on the stand. She was a social equal to the justices. Well, you know, she was a woman, so clearly inferior in every way, but her class and family pedigree matched theirs. Beyond that, Osborne was better read than Sarah Good and probably than the justices. She knew her Bible and she knew her Cotton Mather. Rather than Good's strategy of outright denial, Osborne played into the supposition that witchcraft was real and that these girls were victims of it. Osborne was, as she claimed, rather bewitched than a witch. She was a victim of dark sorcery. She told the court that a spectral man, a ghost in the form of an Indian, had appeared at her door one night, months ago. He hauled her out of bed by the hair, through her living room and out the front door into the field where, where this ghostly Indian, he... Well, she lost her composure there. But everyone knew what he had done to her. It was a good story, intended to build sympathy for the accused, and she sold it well. The girls, the accusers, as keen to the story as anyone else, well, they had been quiet all throughout. But then, once she finished, they resumed their gesticulation. They claimed that Osborne had visited them this very morning, an impossibility, of course, she had been in captivity, at least an impossibility for anybody lacking satanic powers. The girls described her clothing, an outfit that happened to be identical to what she wore here in the courtroom. Now that detail might sound inconspicuous to us today, and it should, but it's going to have severe consequences in a mere few days. More to the point, however, beyond the girls' gesticulations was the thrust of local politics. That legal battle I mentioned between the Putnam family and Sarah Osborne, it was not to be litigated here today. This was a witchcraft trial. But wouldn't you know it, the Putnam clan, Osborne's former stepsons, remember, had more than a little circumstantial evidence. When the Osborne woman had lived in their home, many of them had spied a witch's mark, a mole found on their youthful stepmother that suggested nefarious intentions on her part, as well as dark arts performed in their own home. Shocked gasps rattled the courtroom, and the innkeeper's wife took Sarah Osborne off to perform an examination. She did indeed carry a mark in a most sensitive region. Osborne, too, was taken to Salem Town and committed to a cell. Following this hearing, a couple of days passed. They knew that they had to deal with the third accusation, but the last woman implicated by the girls was uncomfortable. Tituba was a servant in the Paris household. She was a favored slave to the Parises and a well-known, much-loved fixture in the local Puritan church. Still, though, the evidence was piling up. The girls' claims, even more their cries and spasms, well, they seem to have proven the guilt of two witches now. Tituba must be questioned. Next time we're going to begin with Tituba's testimony. It was a story that would change everything, and arguably doom dozens in New England, accused of witchcraft by a growing cabal of teenage girls. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. 
Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews wherever it is you listen to the show. And everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you really should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.